stock of Bond's famous two trouser suits, regularly one hundred nine fifty. Uh, 18 pages of uh, 
wrapping up what happened all during the previous year. And, of course, it's all bad. Wars, strikes, assassinations, guys that died by jumping out of windows, you know, major conflagrations that blew up all over the world. And they wrap it all up. The president is always concerned about the future, but he looks forward with hope. And uh, this is a this is a year-end tradition that goes all the way back to the very earliest days of the pharaohs. Because man bases his in, almost his entire existence on time. Time. And you know there's a theory about that. I don't know how I got into this. This is a pretty dull show, but <laughs> is it? <laughs> there's a theory about you know, there's a theory about this whole time thing. And that is the time doesn't even exist. It's it's a, it's a thing that man created. He actually created the concept of time. This is WOR New York. I mean, for what it's worth. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to straighten out. We're, we've been planning all this year to straighten out. And there are a lot of theories about time, and they are only that. They're theories. There's, there's, no, there's no facts. Time is not a fact. And most people would, would swear that it is. You know, that's what do you mean? What do you mean? Time is a fact. But there, this, is a, this is only a theory. But uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about this. And, and uh, there's been a lot of, of course, Einstein dealt with time. Uh, this is uh, one of his chief studies, uh, time as a finite dimension. We know of depth. We know of width. We know of height. Uh, that, that he also felt, and, and there, of course, it's a fact, uh, many have certainly proven uh, mathematically that time is a finite Dimension. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, a lot of people uh, are confused by the idea that if you travel fast enough through space, time changes. They found this out, you know, and this is one of Einstein's theories that uh, that that if you if you travel, the faster you go, the closer to the speed of light you go. That uh, the time no longer exists in the same. It's not a straight line function, in other words. So that, so that if, if you could take a man and, and project him billions of miles into space, uh, billions of miles, I mean, say, into another solar system at the speed of light or faster, that uh, he could conceivably come back and be, say, if he left uh, Earth and he traveled billions of miles at that speed and he was, say, 35 when he left, he could conceivably come back and be, say, 38 now. In actuality, his body has aged 38 now. And all the rest of the people that were on the earth when he left have been dead and gone for 150 years. Now, this is a scientific fact. I'm not inventing it. <laughs> so, you, you, the concepts of time are, uh, are shaky, and they're, they're based largely on the aging process of man himself. So after all, what is a year then? You see, you'd have to say, well, well, what is a year? Uh, that, that somehow he has arrested time. He, he he stopped time. Well, then the question arises: Is there time at all? That that uh, theoretically, he could go so fast. Ultimately, if he goes well over the uh, the speed of of uh, light, he could go so fast and <laughs> so so fantastically fast that time would would stand still for him. 
that he would reach an, an optimum point where he could travel billions and billions and billions of miles out to some way far out galaxy and then travel billions of miles back and be not more than a minute or two older than he was when he left. But he will come back on Earth and the people have been gone, not only the gone, but it will be thousands of years have passed in our Earth time and in our normal way of measuring time. And he would, could very well return to a continent that has uh, practically sunken into the sea. New climate has arisen. Uh, a new ice age has arrived and gone. Civilizations are beginning to spring up again. And this guy comes back. And he's only about like 35 seconds older than he was when he left. This is a... I mean, what a terrible thing for me to be bringing up. I mean, we should be singing, When all the acquaintance be forgotten and never brought to mind, and all thine. Oh, man. Listen, I part of our, you know, part of our vast... Traditional programming here, and uh, and I have I have all kinds of uh, uh, resolutions that I have uh, secretly stashed away in my desk. Uh, the people who are closest to me realize that uh, I've already begun to work on two of those resolutions. One of them, for the first time, in, uh, since last year, as a matter of fact, this time you can see the top of my desk. I made a resolution that I was going to clean up my desk. And I found all kinds of great stuff that I had thought I'd lost. You know, all kinds of stuff. Like like there was a pipe I thought I'd lost. By God, I found it under this great big pile of papers. I found my checkbook, which I thought I I lost a long time ago. I found uh, all kinds of great stuff on my desk. And that, to me, is, you know, it's a little private thing. It it won't last. I'm perfectly aware that by, uh, oh, I'd say give me three weeks, and I'll be up to my blooming knickers again in that office. I... We, we have this uh, executive here at the station. He came by the other day, and he took one look, and he says, Look, he says, you tell him to do something about that desk. He says, Soon. Uh, he wasn't going to be an, uh, an order. He, had, he, was just, uh, he was just being snide. Uh, he says, Look, he says, you tell him do something about that desk. I'm going to do one of two things. Either I'm going to call a fumigator. He says, Because I'm sure I saw something moving in that pile there a couple of days ago. something there. I heard it scratching, too. He says, Either we're going to... We're going to call in the fumigator, or he says, I'm simply going to set a match to it and seal off this room. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I figured, well, you know, you can take a hit so long. So I've cleaned off my desk, and that's the first thing. I think that's a step in the right direction. Uh, I, I'm not promising much. No, no, I think, I think that to, to, to uh, promise yourself too many great sweeping changes is to set yourself up for eventual disappointment, because it ain't going to happen. I have never known anybody, and I'm sure you haven't, Al, either, who's actually, from the time you knew them till the time they passed out of your life and went somewhere else and got a job someplace else or something, you know, I'll bet you've never known a person who really changed fundamentally at any point. Never. Now, they always say they're going <laughs> to. I mean, uh, man's, uh, man's dreams far exceed his capabilities especially as it relates to him. And he says, by God, by next year at this time, I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to be not going to lose my temper. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to clear my life of all the dead wood and junk. It's going to be absolutely uh, 
A forward-moving time? It's going to be, uh, I'm going to, uh, cut out eating peanut butter sandwiches? I'm going to, you know, I'm through the whole thing. Absolutely. And I will, I, 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 I wait until the first of the year because that's the time to get all this stuff straightened out. And, uh, I would say roughly this resolve lasts, so I'd say 36, 37 minutes. And uh, then it begins to be eroded. Uh, because the first thing that happens, you go to somebody's house, you know, five minutes after you made the resolution, and they're having their big uh, uh, peanut butter sandwich roast. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, well, I, I couldn't turn down Aki after all. I prepared this, you know, and I, I said I wasn't going to drink no eggnog. I was going to do all that stuff. I was going to stick strictly to, to Fresca, and I was going to eat crackers the rest of the year, nothing but the lettuce. But I couldn't turn Aki down. Oh, you know, Aki's been looking forward to this for, you know, for years, and, uh, and you know, they've been planning this party since last July. So uh, I'll, 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 I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> Just tonight I'll go up. I'll, I'll start tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And I'm going to start reading them serious books, too, tomorrow. Uh, right now i got a headache, and uh, I don't want to start tonight. Uh, got a headache, you know, and uh, I, I, I'm beginning to believe that the one, one reason i got a headache is because I, I keep reading books at uh, small print. So uh, I'll start tomorrow when the light is better. I'll read them good books. And, uh, of course, I can't disappoint Aki. Of course, there's another thing, too. Uh, damn it, I've got that lunch. That's right, there's a lunch tomorrow. And, of course, uh, of course, uh, Charlie wants to go to the Four Seasons. Can't order uh, lettuce and uh, and the fresca there. But uh, well, uh, after lunch tomorrow, I'll start this whole thing. Uh, that's the trouble, with Charlie. You know, Charlie. Every time we go over to Charlie, orders this French wine, all that stuff. I'll start tomorrow night. Oh, I forgot all about that tomorrow. Night. Of course, I'm having. Yeah, son of a gun. I have have uh, supper with uh, with Fred tomorrow night. Uh, yeah, well. Uh, no, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, so it's not, not Fred. Poor Fred. It's died. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so, a George Ade, who wrote in, in, uh, this was, this piece was written in 1893. Now, that is a long time ago, by anybody's standards. And George Ade, who was in Chicago, and who wrote in Chicago, Wrote, uh, uh, and, and by the way, the, the language is, it has a curious period sound to it. So if you're a collector of period language, Aid is a master. And in fact, he called these fables of his fables in slang. They were slang of the period. And uh, it's always dangerous to write in slang because uh, slang goes out of date almost instantly. And uh, if you have written a great story that's written in slang, by uh, you know a few years from now, people don't even understand uh, what, what it's all about. Uh, so you got to be careful as a writer when you should use this stuff. But uh, A did it purposely. He he did it to create fables that were using slang of the day. And this is called the fable of successful Tobias and some of his happy New Years. And it begins this way: Once there was a financial heavyweight the milestones of whose busy life were strung back across the valley of tribulation into the green fields of childhood. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing a guy? Listen to this. Once there was a financial heavyweight. Now, this is a big tycoon, a guy who's made it. Once there was a financial heavyweight, the milestones of whose busy life were strung back across the valley of tribulation into the green fields of childhood. 
Like most of our aristocrats, he got his start out among the corn rows. His youth was spent very happily, but he did not get on to the fact until years later. Doesn't that sound exactly the way it is today? This was written in 1893. So if you think nostalgia is a new thing, it has always been part of the, of the mythology of mankind. His youth was spent very happily, but he did not get on to the fact until years later. He used to work 14 hours per for his board and clothes, and his only dissipation was to take in the Swiss bell ringers once every season. <laughs> at the close of each year, he was permitted to attend a watch meeting at the Mount Zion Church. The watch meeting was a form of gaiety invented a long time ago by someone who was not feeling well at the time. The outfit were supposed to sit there for three or four hours on the hard benches, meditating on all the low-down, ornery things that they had done during the old year. Some of them had to hurry in order to crowd this line of meditation into a brief four hours. You ever been or heard of a watch meeting? Well, that's what he used to do at the end of every year when he was a kid. That was his only gaiety, that and watching the Swiss bell ringers. However, now and then, a local high guy with throat whiskers would arise and talk for a short time on the subject of death. This is at the watch meeting and would wonder how many of those present would be taken in by the Grim Reaper during the next year. And just at midnight, the sexton would toll the bell so as to cheer everyone up. Then each of the merrymakers would go home and eat a piece of mince pie and a bellflower apple and retreat to the feathers, feeling a little ashamed if I hadn't stayed up so late. Those were his early New Year's. Later on, after Tobias moved into town and began to wear store clothes and stand-up collars and put oil on his hair, he encountered another kind of New Year's Day. The era at that time was that of the open house. All the women received, and the men went over the entire circuit and traded job-printed cards for something to eat and drink. This made it fine for those who were not ordinarily invited into the best homes. The men roamed about in flocks, and usually they had a hard finish, for it was customary in those good old days of democratic simplicity for every true gentleman to take a drink when it was proffered by the hand of a lovely woman. And lovely women seemed to regard it as her assignment to put all the nice young fellows to the bad. It was customary to mix tea, coffee, sherbet, lemonade, eggnog, artillery punch, scissorine, and straight goods until the... Happy New Year looked like a scrambled rainbow, and the last caller was totally sozzled. Tobe used to go out every New Year's Day to meet the good lookers and fuss around with them, for those were his salad days. He made it a combination salad and philandered with about seven before he took the big risk and bought a home with a mortgage attachment and settled down. Then the Happy New Year began to have an entirely new meaning. He drew a red mark around January 1st, for that was the day he had to make the books balance and take up some big note that was hanging over him like a storm cloud. His usual plan for celebrating the Happy New Year was to sit in his office, figuring out how to trim the payroll and sneak up selling prices and keep out of the sheriff's hands for another 12 months. But the time came when Tobias could take out a pencil on December 31st and compute a net profit big enough to fill a furniture van. 
To all intents and purposes, he had come to the high ground. He had made it, where he could afford to sit down for a while and enjoy the scenery. He certainly possessed all the accessories of a happy New Year. He had a bankroll, a house on the boulevard, and a wife who was slowly but surely worming her way into society. He had a son attending a high-priced university and gradually accumulating an Oxford accent, while his daughter was at school, at a school which used the French novel as a textbook. So after all these years of struggling, Tobias knew what it was to have a genuinely happy New Year. But when the children came home for the holiday vacations, the busy Mrs. Tobias gave a big dancing party on New Year's Eve to say nothing of a couple of luncheons and a formal dinner. At these glittering functions, the family did what it could to keep Tobias in the background. For while he was a corker when it came to doing a fountain pen specially with a checkbook, he was a frosted turnip when chucked into a suit costing $100 and put down on a Marie Antoinette apartment with a lot of Chaunceys who have been educated in the East. Poor Tobias did not fit in. <laughs> he celebrated the glad New Year by standing around in doorways and looking mournfully at the lightweights who were doing the cotillion and each of them having the time of his life. He saw his wife hobnobbing with a human pickerel whose only excuse for being on earth was that he looked well in evening clothes. Daughter was dancing with a lovely specimen of the night-blooming rounder and son was passing out cigarettes and there was no one, no one was paying any attention to the provider. So Tobias made a quiet retreat to his own room, had a glass of milk sent up, and read the market report, and managed to put in a pleasant evening after all, seeing the old one out and the new one in. That's the end of the story of Tobias. <laughs> You know, that's, this guy put in one little fable, a two-page piece, an entire life. He really did. And you know what the moral of this is? And, and it's a good one to think about. His moral is one new year is just about as happy as another. <laughs> you know, that's true to that. You want to hear another George Ade fable that in a way says a lot? It's... It, it talks about the, the uh, you know, we tend to think that the generation gap and all this stuff, you know, with the kid wondering what the hell it's all about, is a, is a new thing. This is a great American myth, really is. And I'm going to read something to you that may surprise you. Just hold on a minute. I'm looking for it. I'll find it. Uh, let's see. All right, I'll find it yet. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Here it is. Listen to this one. And it's about a kid. He didn't write many things about kids. And this is a fable about a kid. Now, for all of you who think that, that kids were simpler in the old days and were not aware of anything that was happening to them, uh, I can only say that this is another part of the mythology of our time. We tend to believe this. Now, this is about a kid, and this one, in case you're curious, was written in 1894 during what they called the uh, the gay 90s. That was right in the middle of the gay 90s when you know, everybody's 
supposed to be not concerned with anything. This was written in 1894 by George Aid, and it's called The Fable of the Caddy Who Hurt His Head While Thinking. You know what a caddy is. And uh, you never think in terms of golf and stuff back in the 1890s, but listen to this. This is a story of a caddy. One day, a caddy sat in the long grass near the ninth hole and wondered if he had a soul. Now, first of all, it would be assumed by many people, and it is assumed by many people, that a kid prior to, say, 1961 <laughs> never thought about anything even remotely like that, like soul, for example. I open with the first line. One day, a caddy sat in the long grass near the ninth hole and wondered if he had a soul. His number was 27, and he had almost forgotten his real name. Now, there's another myth. You know, we like to tell that only in our time do men become numbers, right? Okay, 1894. His number was 27, and he had almost forgotten his real name. As he sat and meditated, two players passed him. They were going the long round, and the frenzy was upon them. You know what the long round is. is two, you can play two games of golf on a golf course. The short round is nine holes. The long round is going all the way around, say. Uh, remember, he writes in slang, so you got to keep your ear tuned. He sat and meditated, and two players passed him. They were going the long round, and the frenzy was upon them. They followed the gutta-percha balls with the intense swiftness of trained bird dogs, and each talked feverishly of brass flies and getting past the bunker and lofting to the green and slicing into the bramble each telling his own game to the ambient air and ignoring what the other fellow had to say. As they did the St. Andrew's pull swing for 80 yards apiece and then followed through with the usual explanation of how it happened, the caddy looked at them and reflected that they were so much inferior to his father. His father was too serious a man to get out in Mardi Gras clothes and hammer a ball from one red flag to another. His father worked in a lumber yard. He was an earnest citizen who seldom smiled, and he knew all about the silver question and how J. Pierpont Morgan done up a free people on the bond issue. Yep, the caddy just sat and meditated and wondered how it was that his father, a really great man, had to shove lumber all day, could seldom get one dollar to rub against another, while these superficial Johnnies who played golf all the time had money to throw at the birds. The more he thought, the more his head ached. End of the story. <laughs> all right. Now that, 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 that character, now that character... According to many people, they, they tend to think that the kids must have been like Tom Sawyer. You know? Okay. That was written in 1894. Now, uh, uh, this, again, part of our mythology is that each succeeding generation is superior to the one that came before it. This, this is a genuine belief that Americans have. Uh, I don't, I don't quite, uh, you know, know how we know how we came to this belief, but we do believe it. Uh, it's curious that people of such a long gone and archaic time could have written stuff like the Greek tragedies. I mean, if we have 
been improved so much over those guys. You'd think that we could write better than they are, you know, they and do all these. But, you know, when was Shakespeare alive? Well, it was considerably before 1961. He was here long before uh, Jerry Rubin and Paul Krasner, and he could write pretty good. Uh, but that's that's part of the of the mythology. In other words, there has been really no noticeable improvement in man. There's been a lot of noticeable improvements in the machines around him. This is a fact. But man, no, he just goes on, and he's always confused. He was a kid in 1894. He's always confused at what appears to him to be inequities in his time. Always the case. Always. What do you think Hamlet was talking about? Hamlet. Here he is. He's talking about the king. And he's talking about the corruption. The king. The whole bit. He was anti... What was more establishment in Hamlet's time than the king? That was establishment. And here he is walking around, and he's 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 soliloquizing, and this is this is a continual, a law. Well, it it goes back to the earliest days, of uh, of a, of recorded, and even unrecorded history. It even goes back to the early days of the Greek myth. What do you think that the that the flight of Icarus was about? You know you know the myth, don't you? When 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 father and son uh, took off with wings that they had made. They were escaping, and they, they had wings that, that were attached to their arms, made out of wax. And the father warned the son. He did. He says, don't fly too high. And the kid says, what does this guy know? <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> what does this fool know? And the father says, no, I know. He says, I've been around. I know. And so they flew. And they're, they're flying great. They're flying out over the sea. Everything's going groovy. And all of a sudden, the kid says, I'm going to really... You know, and so he took off higher and higher. And, of course, he is, the higher he flew, the, the closer he got to the sun. And then all of a sudden, the sun melted the wings. Whoosh, splash. End of the ball game. Well, now, this, uh, this, this is, again, a story. Of, of, and this is uh, so old that nobody knows where this story originated. It's, it's part of the Greek myth. It goes back thousands of years. And it's, again, the story of a generation gap. There always is, always will be, always has been. And yet we tend to think that's a new thing. That's part of the myth of our time. The new, the new thing, the generation... Oh, you're curious about what, the, uh, about what the motto of that story was, the caddy. Well, it's a very simple motto. It ain't a very... Uh, uh, let's put it this way. It's not, the, it's not an upbeat motto. It's more... Let's, let's, uh, let's put it on this basis. It's more of a, of a realistic... Uh, it's not really a motto. It's a moral. The moral of the caddy who sat there and watched the, the golfers go around, he couldn't figure out how they, you know, how they made it. Being such fools, they do nothing but hit balls around, you know, out there on the green, had little red flags. Well, the moral, written in 1894, is this. Don't try to account for anything. <laughs> See, that's another one of the myths of our, of our world is we like to believe there is a logical way. You know, when people, one of the greatest, uh, and I think we're getting out of that, but one of the great, a few years ago, one of the great myths that was being promulgated by writers and by editorialists is that we are living in an insane world, a sick world. Uh, an insane world. You've heard that many times. 
And uh, what what would it be like? They keep saying, let us return to sanity. Let's return to a sane world. Well, that that implies, of course, that, that things can be straightened out. There is this firm belief among men that everything can be straightened out. That you can you can straighten out at all. This is what Nader is is really in a sense preaching constantly. And everyone believes that there are solutions to all of difficulties, problems, sexual life, everything else can be straightened out if you get the right book, if you get the right system, if you get the right guy in office, if you get the right person running the show. It's all going to straighten out, and we will then be on the plane of sanity. It, it even runs through uh, political speeches. How many times have you heard this this political uh, this political speech made in your lifetime? And as we take up the reins of state in a troubled sea of world conflict and world problems, we promise you that we will steer the ship of state into placid safe harbors, which means that somewhere ahead is this place that's placid and safe and forever man will uh, <laughs> you know live in a utopia and this this has constantly been part of the mythology of man and incidentally has caused constantly total disappointment in people's lives it's eon after eon i guess it's see i'm really uh, I'm, I'm a hopeful speaker here i'm saying that life is neither sane nor insane it's life once you learn to dig life itself that all of the trials and tribulations and problems and seeming iniquities and all of it are part of life. You know, that's part. That's what life is about. <laughs> it ain't about nothing else, really. Yeah, don't try to account for anything. The first show of the new year. Just pull in your guts. Don't forget when Aki starts passing out them toasted, uh, them toasted uh, junk-style peanut butter sandwiches. And uh, the eggnog, uh, you can always start tomorrow with the heck. You don't want to disappoint Aki, you know. And don't forget tomorrow at uh, Fred's place, you don't want to disappoint him. After all, he's he's laid in a ham, you know, with the pineapple sauce and the mince pie and all that. You, don't want, you can start next Wednesday, maybe Friday. But uh, it's going to be a better year. Get straightened out. I got the desk cleaned up. Everything's going to be groovy. I don't know what that guy means. What about this? Don't account for anything. All we got to do is get on a stick. It's all going to square away, right, gang? Sure. Right. <laughs> yes, sir.